0: This is a reading from St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter three, verses one through six, found on page 977 of the Pew Bibles. Hear these words from the book that we love. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was mo- not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, this mystery is that, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promised in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Grant, almighty God, that as you shine on us by your word, we may not be blind at midday, nor willfully seek darkness and thus lull our minds asleep, but may we be roused daily by your words, and may we stir up ourselves more and more to fear your name and thus present ourselves and all our pursuits as a sacrifice to you, that you may be peacefully rule and perpetually dwell in us until you gather us to your celestial habitation where there is reserved for us eternal rest and glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated.
1: This week I had a culinary revelation. You ready for it? Spaghetti, squash, pad thai, fajitas. Now, I know what you're thinking, but hear me out before you scoff at the idea. A man and I have been. Uh, on a health kick lately, uh, and she's been killing it in the kitchen. I'm learning a lot of things about myself, things I like, things I dislike. Um, also learning that it's a lot harder to lose weight in my 30s than in my 20s. Um, anybody else recognize that reality? Okay, good. One of you do, does. Um, so she whipped up this amazing spaghetti squash pad thai. It had sun—it was made with sunflower butter, red peppers, sriracha, and chicken. And it was like this explosion of flavors, right? Well, so the next day, I'm reheating the leftovers. And I'm not really like a leftovers guy, but you know, I'm also trying to save money. You know, so I did that too. So losing weight, saving money, a lot harder than I ever thought it was gonna be. Uh, and I, as I'm heating up the... Uh, The spaghetti squash pad thai, the peppers, the spiciness from the peppers just hit me. And suddenly I have a vision of fajitas dancing in my head. So I grilled some tortillas real quick. I grabbed some, I I throw them on the stove, I grill them, uh, you know, kind of warm them up, blacken them up. And I loaded them with the spaghetti squash pad thai, and it was like a divine fusion of flavors. Delicious. I've only experienced one other culinary res- revelation like this before spicy mustard and duck sauce mixed together on an egg roll. That's courtesy of my father in law. Don't knock it till you try it. I'm telling you, it's really good. But spaghetti, squash, pad thai fajitas that's my brainchild. My stroke of culinary genius. And I wholeheartedly recommend it to you all. In fact, I'll even put my money where my mouth is. If you ever decide to open up like a taco truck and sell these things, I'll invest. All right, but just to be clear, this sermon is recorded, so this is my intellectual property. So hands off, all right? Don't try to copyright that thing. Uh, Lawyers in the room, is that right? Okay, thank you. Spaghetti, squash, pad thai, fajitas are a revelation. And as we come to Ephesians 3, we're met with another revelation. But this one... It's not about food. It's more amazing, it's more astounding, it's more wonderful, it's more surprising than spaghetti, squash, pad thai, fajitas could ever be. This revelation is from God, that in Christ, he was bringing together all the ethnicities of the world into a new society, a new humanity, the church. Now, the church, capital C Church, the universal church, may not seem like a revelation to us in the 21st century, but in the first century to Christians, this was a revelation. If you recall, a couple weeks ago, we were in chapter 2, Paul told us that God, in Christ's death on the cross, broke down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile and made peace between them and made the church, which Paul calls the dwelling place of God. Now, he tells us in chapter 3, no one saw coming. No human saw coming. No spiritual being, in verse 10, he says, saw coming. Rather, the church was a mystery in God's eternal purpose for his world. And it plays a vital role in his plan. And so, what I want us to see today is that the church must take a central role in our lives. For ours and our world's sakes. If God held on to this, and this is now a revelation, it should be pretty important to us. So I want to talk about the revelation of the church I want to talk about the victory of the church and the power of the church. So revelation, victory, and power. So the revelation of the church. We read verses 1 through 6. We're going to zoom in on verse, verse 6, okay? So that's going to be on the screen. Ephesians 3, 6 says this. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. God kept the church a mystery, Paul says, until he decided to reveal it. Paul says that the church is a new humanity comprised of Jew and Gentile, and this was a mystery. The Greek word is mysterion. It's a mysterion. So young people, if you've ever seen Scooby-Doo or you read Sherlock Holmes or seen Sherlock Holmes movies, in English the word mystery is often dark and secretive, but the Greek word mysterion is different. It means a sacred secret, something closely guarded, but later opened up by God. So it reminds us that God actually closely guards some things that he later reveals to certain people in his own sovereignty. So, for instance, Jesus in Matthew 13, 11 says that the apostles had been given to know the secrets, the mysterion of the kingdom of heaven, but some people have not. Here, mysterion, the mysterion, the mystery is that Gentiles, non-Jews, are equal members of God's people, and they're equal with the Jews. And that would have come as a shock to many, especially the Jews. It would have been an absolute shock. They're so used to being known as, as God's special people, God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham. And so it would be shocking to them that all of a sudden the Gentiles are now equal with us. But God did leave clues along the way. And along the way, he left these clues that The Jew-Gentile church was part of his plan all along. So we read in Genesis 12.3 that God blesses Abraham to be a blessing to all people, not just Jews, to everyone. Psalm 22.7 says that the nations will come worship God. Zechariah 2.11 says that many nations will join themselves to God and be his people and we remember maybe Jesus quotes Isaiah 56.7 that the temple was to be called a house of prayer for all peoples. God left these little clues along the way. He didn't reveal it all, but he's leaving these clues that it wasn't just the Jews who were supposed to experience his love and his grace and his, his like, magnitude and glory, but that the Gentiles would too. So whenever you read in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, it says nations, you need to think about ethnicities, not necessarily nation states. When we hear the word nations, we think like nation states, like, well, there's the nation of America, there's the nation of England, the nation of, you know, Djibouti or something like that, you know, everybody's, every middle schooler's favorite country, Djibouti. But although the Jews failed to be the light of the world and include the Gentiles, God's eternal purpose was still at work to bring all ethnicities together in the church. Now, inclusion is one thing, but being a fellow heir is another. It's a completely different thing, right? It's it's one thing for me to invite you to my house for dinner, say for I don't know, spaghetti, squash, pad thai, fajitas, right? It's another thing for me to write you into my will. Maybe another illustration. After my mom passed away in 2012, my dad remarried this wonderful woman named Lisa, and Lisa brought with her a lovely daughter, Jess, who became my stepsister. And we made every effort. It took a little time. It was a little rocky at first, but we made every effort to include them into our family. However, as time passed, a realization dawned on us. When my brothers, my four brothers and I, discovered a significant change in our inheritance structure. What was once meant to be divided equally amongst the four of us suddenly was between five beneficiaries. Me, my three brothers, and Jess. And naturally, this revelation shocked us and deeply unsettled us. It kind of felt unfair, like inherently. Like I've been around my whole life, I've been part of my dad's family. Now my stepsister gets equal share of what my dad will leave us. To have our inheritance shared felt like a betrayal in many ways. And an ancient Jew would have felt the same way. We're now sharing the inheritance. What do you mean we're going to share the earth like God promised to give us? Inclusions, one thing; inheritance is a completely another thing. They would have felt betrayed. They would have felt angry, even disgusted at this news. And so Jesus told this story. He tells this story in Matthew twenty one through sixteen. He says, "Look, there's a landowner." who hired laborers to work in his field for a day's wage. He hired some people at 9 a.m., some people at noon, 3 p.m., and 5 p.m. And at 6 p.m., when the workday was over, the landowner paid everyone the same amount. The 9 a.m. guys got the same amount as the 5 p.m. guys. So naturally, what do you think the 9 a.m. guys did? They went to their union representative. No, I'm just kidding. They went to the, the landowner and they complain. They feel betrayed. They feel angry. They're disgusted toward the landowner. But the landowner pushes back. He says, look, I paid you what I said I would pay you, what I promised I'd pay you. And secondly, it's my money. I can do with it what I want to do with it. And Jesus tells this story to to remind us that God's people, God's family, are exactly that. God's family. God's people. If God wants to include the Gentiles and make them fellow heirs with the Jews, he has every right to do so. It's his right, it's his prerogative. He can do what he wants with his inheritance, whatever he wants. So Gentiles who put their faith in Christ share in the same reward as Jews who do, despite what anyone feels they deserve. And listen to me, the same is true for you. It doesn't matter how sinful you were, where you came from, what you've done, who you vote for or voted for, what your skin color is, how rich you are or how poor you are, as long as you've been saved by grace through faith, you're part of God's family, God's people, God's church, the church. The church is the only place in our world where the things that categorize us should it matter. That's why Paul will say in Galatians 3, there's n- neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. All are one in Christ. James says that God shows no partiality between the rich and the poor. If you remember the letter in James where they're treating the rich better than the poor, the rich, they're like, hey, would you like to sit in our sanctuary right where the acoustics hit perfectly and you got a good view of the pastor? And they set the poor people to sit on the floor or in our context, probably the front row. And James says, you're not treating people like God treats them. He shows no partiality. So whoever God saves is my brother or sister because we're all fellow heirs. We're all members of the same body. We're all partakers of the promise in Christ. And the local church, like Liberty Northeast, is called to be a microcosm of the church. So my question for us is how we do with this? Do you implicitly treat others here better or worse than some others? Do you go out of your way to greet people you don't know or haven't met? Do you avoid people at church who are different than you? Jesus gave a pretty simple rule to help us with this. He said, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Do you talk to people the way you would want them to talk to you? Do you treat others at church the way you want to be treated? Do you treat visitors like the way you would wanna be treated if you were visiting? Or are we too busy talking to our friends? Do you treat children as valuable, just as valuable as adults? Millennials, do you treat boomers as well as millennials? Gen Zers, do you treat millennials as well as Gen Zers? That's why I never liked the okay boomer thing. Okay boomer. It's like at some point it's going to be like okay millennial. In a world of prejudice, hatred, exclusion, tribalism, does the world need more stuff like that from the church? The one place that's supposed to be different? Absolutely not. So the question is, is our church, Liberty Northeast, a microcosm of the church? Yes. But does it reflect what the church should be? Or does it reflect what the world is? And so not only that, so that's like the revelation of the church, there's also the victory of the church. Let's pick up in verse 7. Of this gospel... I was made a minister according to the gift of grace which was given to me by the work of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. The church is the living, breathing proclamation of God's victory to the physical and spiritual worlds. That's what we'll see here in this section. Paul, as an apostle in the church, proclaimed the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles to bring their equal status in the gospel to light to the world. Paul's point of letting Gentiles know that they're accepted in Christ, if they put their faith in Christ, that they are accepted into God's people was proclamation to the whole world of what God was doing. And through the preaching of the gospel, God gathers Jews and Gentiles into the church. And by the church's existence, she plays a vital role in proclaiming the victory of Christ on the cross, not just to humans, but to the spiritual world as well. Look at verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now there's debate, who are these beings? Are they angels? Are they demons? Are they both? Let's just say they're both, all right? We're not sure. As powerful as angels and demons are, they're not omniscient. They're not all-knowing. So the church was even revelation to the angels. The church was still, was even revelation to the demons. And simply by existing as a Jew-Gentile people, we remind the spiritual world of Christ's victory on the cross through his death and resurrection, of his redemption, of his, the forgiveness of sins, of our reconciliation between us and God and us and each other. Not only should the church be proclaiming this, that Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile by just gathering together with people we don't know, when we gather together with people who are different than us, we're actually telling the spiritual world everything you're trying to do behind the scenes to divide us, we're not giving into it because Christ will not let us when we're his people. So, verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we looked at verse 10 of chapter 2, we saw that we're God's exhibits and trophies, but not just as individuals. We are also corporately, together, God's exhibit, God's trophy a symbol to the world of God's victory, the victory of the church is found in God's victory on our behalf. In the grand tapestry of nations, symbols serve as steadfast reminders of authority and triumph. Across the globe, kingdoms adorn themselves with emblems that echo things like their sovereignty and their conquests. And in the heart of Philadelphia, our city, we proudly boast an array of symbols that declare our hard-won independence and decisive victories over Great Britain. Among these is Independence Hall. Right? So maybe you went to Independence Hall on a field trip or, you know, you have friends from out of town and, like, you never go to Independence Hall, but they always want to, so you take them down there. It's a symbol. It's an iconic landmark. It's not merely just a relic of our storied past. It's a living testament to the original 13 colonies' triumph. Its very presence serves as a resounding proclamation of victory, and it echoes throughout all of history. It's similar in the same way with the church. The church serves as a resounding proclamation of God's victory in Christ. When we gather, when the church gathers, the church's existence is resounding proclamation of what Christ has done. Think about this. As the body of Christ, we remind the physical and spiritual worlds that God has won. God has taken what was broken through the broken body of Christ, has brought them together. And the church's presence has changed the world for the better. Look at all throughout history. Because of the church, we have things like human rights, hospitals, education, there's historical contributions to art and music and culture. Did you know we, eat, we have holidays because of the church? Like you get days off from work because of the church. What well, the church has done throughout history. It says, you know what? People probably need some days off to reflect on some things. And the church has pre- changed the spiritual world as well. There's a whole lot of non Jews in heaven because of the church's proclamation to the world. You're hearing the gospel preached today in Northeast Philadelphia in the 21st century by descendants of Irish immigrants because of what God has done through the church. God's eternal purpose was to create the church through Christ and included in Christ's victory our boldness and access to God himself through prayer. Look at verse 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. You have boldness and access to the Father because of Christ. God loves the church. God loves the church because we're a reminder of his victory. No matter how bad the world gets, no matter how strong the spiritual world may seem, they have to face the fact that the church isn't going Anywhere. At the Liberty Leadership Day, we got, chance, we got all the pastors, elders and deacons from all Liberty churches together. We had Pastor Bob Thune uh, was our guest, one of our guest speakers. And his first point, when he's talking about the future of the church, his first point is that the future of the church is guaranteed. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus' promise is a wonderful reminder that the church is guaranteed even hell can't stand up against it. Is that because somehow we're awesome? No, it's because God is awesome. Is that somehow because we're powerful? No, because God is powerful. And He has chosen us to proclaim His victory to the world. Think about that. Think about all the things that aren't guaranteed. Your job's not guaranteed. Your 401k, heck, that's not guaranteed. Who you want to be president, that's not guaranteed. You know, who, your kids' college choices, that's not guaranteed. Will they be successful so they can get married and have kids and they can retire and drive Volvos? I don't know that. None of that's guaranteed. But Jesus says the church is Guaranteed. When we are short-sighted and we look at the world, it makes it makes things like that easy to forget. But God loves the church, and so He guarantees its future. So John Stott says this: It's a pretty long quote, so I'm put on the screen for you guys. The major lesson by this first half of Ephesians three is the biblical centrality of the church. Some people construct a Christianity which consists entirely of a personal relationship to Christ and has virtually nothing to do with the church. Others make a grudging concession to the need for church membership, but add that they have given up the ecclesiastical institution as hopeless. Now, it's understandable, even inevitable, that we are critical of many of the church's inherited structures and traditions. Every church in every place at every time is in need of reform and renewal, but we need to beware lest we despise the church of God and are blind to his work in history. We may safely say listen to this God has not abandoned his church, however displeased with it he may be. He's still building it. And refining it. And if God has not abandoned it, how can we? It has a central place in his plan. What's he saying? The church isn't perfect. Never has been. She's comprised of sinners like you and me. And as long as we're around and we're part of the church, church ain't going to be perfect until Jesus comes back but she still has a central place in God's plan. She's still the dwelling place of God in Ephesians 2. She's still the mystery of how God revealed. He's, he's still, we're still the mystery that God has now revealed, as we just read. The church is still the bride of Christ, as Ephesians 5 will say. We're still the living, breathing proclamation of God's victory in Christ to the physical and spiritual world's Her future is still guaranteed. She's still vital to God's plan. And she's still loved by God. If you listen to me real quick, if you've been deeply wounded by the church, that's real. And like as a leader in the church, I'm sorry that should never have happened to you. But I still would encourage you, don't despise the entire church which God loves for the idiotic actions of a few. God still loves the church as messed up as she is. He still loves it. And then we have, lastly, the power of the church. Look at verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. The church is powered by the love of Christ's support and love all those within her walls. Listen, the Christian life can be difficult. That's hard. But it will be impossible if it's done alone. Isn't it interesting that we get a beautiful reminder in Ephesians two that we've been saved by grace, and then Paul immediately turns to the centrality of the church in Ephesians three. It's not an accident. Just because our sermons are weeks apart, don't think that that's like intentional. Like Paul, if you read it, you would just read it. You've been saved by faith. You've been saved by grace through faith. Church the church if you're a christian you need the church the church needs you and the church even changes this is interesting the way we see suffering paul says i'm suffering in prison for you but don't worry it's for your glory this is how amazing the power of the church is that god can actually transform our suffering to benefit others It's often the woman who's been abandoned by her husband but never lost trust in God who's the best resource for another Christian woman who's been abandoned by her husband. That's power. It's often the Christian who experienced the death of a loved one but held on to hope who's the greatest comfort for the brother going through the same thing. It's usually the Christian student-athlete who's experienced the disappointment of getting cut from the team who's the best encouragement the following year when she's made the team to the Christian student-athlete who didn't. The church is more powerful than we realize. That's part of your power, your experiences, the difficulties you've gone through. Part of your power in being part of the church is that it can actually benefit other people. Paul says, I'm in prison, but it's for you. It's for your glory. And he says, her citizens, the church's citizens, expand across the face of the earth and even into heaven. Check out verse 14 through 15. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. If you want to know what it's, how to live in this cultural moment, listen to me. Read the stories of faithful Christians in a highly sexualized Roman Empire and see what they did. You don't have to make stuff up all the time. This is what I always tell like, young couples. like Stop just like... Well, what are we, we going to do? Just, I say, like, how, how, how are we going to be married? How, how do we love each other? How should we raise our kids? I just say, could you do me a favor? Just find a faithful, loving, godly couple and just do what they did. You don't have to make this up. Millions of people have been married and they have figured this out. And a lot of them, myself included, we're dumber than you. If you want to be inspired to make real search, like social change, Google Telemachus. The ancient Christian who died, and by his death, basically put a stop to the gladiatorial games. If you want to know how to stand by Scripture in the face of accusation, watch a YouTube video about Martin Luther before his accusers at the Diet of Worms. If you want to know how to stand for biblical justice and mercy, listen to Dr. King's sermon, I've Been to the Mountaintop. These people's experiences, your experiences, their difficulty, your difficulty can be used by God for the benefit of others, and that's real power. But what we need more than anything, and this is how Paul will end, what we need more than anything, if the church is going to get this church thing right, is to be rooted in Christ's love. Look at the last verses, starting verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in Christ and in, sorry, in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's difficult to bring people who the world categorizes and divides together. These skin colors, they don't mix. These political persuasions, they don't mix. These economic statuses, they don't mix. That's really difficult to then for the church to say, actually, yes, they can and they will. If we don't have love, we're not gonna be able to pull it off. And it's not just like any love, like love you might have for spaghetti, squash, pad thai, fajitas, or tacos, or chocolate. You need sacrificial love, the love of Christ, sacrificial, obedient love that Christ has shown us that Paul says surpasses knowledge. You need that kind of love to fill your heart. And through his love, we are filled with all the fullness of God who can do abundantly more than you can imagine for his church. The church has a vital role to in God's plan for our lives and for our world. So my challenge to you is grow deeper in your love for God's church. Start to love the church the way God loves the church. Come to appreciate its revelation, its power, its victory, and its power. And praise God for what he has done and is doing in and through her. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.